You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. I'd like to invite everybody in the room this morning to turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians is in the New Testament there, right after 1 and 2 Corinthians. If you're using one of those red pew Bibles underneath the seats around you, we're going to be on page 1032 if you're using one of those red Bibles. And then, as always, there's lots of scripture verses in the YouVersion Bible app as well. You can just go to YouVersion, click on More, go to Events, click on Redeeming Life Church, and you'll see all the scriptures in there as well. As you guys are making your way over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I want to ask the room here, and kiddos, you can participate, but how many of you guys have ever heard a dead man speak? How many of you have heard someone dead talk before? Nobody? Nobody in the room, huh? Well, that's exactly what we're going to see happen in our text today. We're going to hear a dead man proclaim the power of the gospel. Believe it or not, that's what we're going to see today. So I'd like to read our text today. It's just one verse is our primary text. Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul is speaking here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord. Will you bow your heads as we pray this morning? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to sit under the preached word, to hear from your word this morning. Lord, I pray that in our time together today, Lord, we would leave here changed because of the power of your gospel. Not because of anything I've said, but because of what you've already said in your word. Because of the gospel that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds, our ears, our hearts to hear your voice today. And that we would leave here changed because of what you are doing and the redeeming work that you're doing in the lives of each and every one of us. It's in your holy and precious name, Lord, I pray. Amen. All right, well, church, this morning we are continuing in our series, Put on Christ. As many of you know, this series is coming out of where we left off in our Roman series, in chapter 13, verse 14, where Paul encourages his readers to put on Christ. So today, as we look at what it means to put on Christ or to clothe ourselves in Christ Jesus, I want to draw your attention again to this verse in Galatians 2 that I just read. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the main point that I want you guys to see this morning. In order to put on Christ, we must die to our sinful desires. We must be crucified with him and allow Christ to rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. I told you this morning that we're going to hear a dead man speak. Now, obviously, Paul, the writer of this letter to the Galatians, has been dead for roughly 2,000 years. So you might be thinking to yourself, this is the death that I'm referring to, that because Paul is dead, and we're reading his letter, that you are hearing a dead man proclaim the gospel, which we are, but that's not what I meant. It's not what I meant at all. The, the incredible reality of the situation here is that while Paul is in fact dead while he's writing this letter, he's not, he's, he said to himself, I've been crucified with Christ. He said, I no longer live. I asked you this morning, how many of you guys have heard a dead man talk? Seems kind of strange. 
But that appears to be what's happening as I read this portion of text in my Bible today. So what's really happening here? What's actually going on here? Let's unpack this a little bit. I heard a young preacher this week state that Paul isn't actually dead because dead men don't talk. That preacher was right. Paul isn't actually dead. It's quite clear that he is very fact alive. In fact, any fan of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies will tell you that dead men tell no tales. So clearly we see Paul talking here. So how could Paul be dead? If we continue reading in verse 20, we see that Paul states how he's very much alive and not dead. Paul states that Christ lives inside of him, and that the life he is living in the body is lived by faith in the Son of God, who loved him and gave his life for him. So, in the end, Paul is still alive while he wrote this letter. He did not pen it to the Galatians from beyond the grave. Therefore, the point that Paul is actually making here, and the thing that we need to remember, is that as Christians, we have to die to our flesh and live for Christ. We have to die to our flesh and live for Christ. That's what putting on Christ actually means. Taking off the old self and putting on the new self. 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. That's it. That's the main point that I have for us this morning. That's the point that Paul is making today. That we need to be crucified with Christ. Put an end to our former way of living. And in turn, as Christians, live for him. But what does that look like? I mean, how, how do we know if we're doing that? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That verse looks great on a coffee mug or written on a t-shirt. But when you look at the bigger picture and actually see this verse within its actual context, man, this verse is way too powerful for a half-torn bumper sticker. Dying to ourselves and living for God is oftentimes easier said than it is done. It's something that we all struggle with, no matter who you are or how great you are. In fact, Jesus' apostles themselves struggled with this very issue, and they walked with God. If we were to pull back and look at the bigger picture here and look at verse 20 in the real scope of what's going on here in Galatians 2, we would find that Paul's actually telling a story. How many of you guys love to tell a story? My dad loves to tell stories, but he always starts in like Genesis. I'm like, can we at least get past the flood? Like, what happened on Tuesday? Start further down. I love to tell stories, and Paul is telling a story here. He's telling a story about a time when he had to call the Apostle Peter out in front of everyone for slipping back into his former ways after having been found righteous before God. Let me give you a little background information on the situation here. After Christ's ascension into heaven, Peter, James, and John have divided things up in an effort to advance the gospel. They've sent Paul and Barnabas out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, while they, in turn, preach the gospel to the Jews. We see this a little bit earlier in chapter 2, just before our verse we read today. In verse 9, it says, When James and Cephas, being Peter and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, Paul, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles 
and they would go to the circumcised. So these pillars of faith, these mighty men of God, have sent Paul and Barnabas out to spread the gospel to the Gentiles while they preach it to the Jews. Pretty straightforward, right? Pretty self-explanatory. Everyone had their marching orders. Now that we all kind of know the background of what's been going on here, I want to read our text in a little more entirety so you can see the drama that unfolds as Paul retells the story of a time that he had to call Peter out. He had to call out this pillar of the faith for sinning against God and living according to the flesh. Let's read Paul's story here about his confrontation with Peter. Let's look at verse 11 and see what happens between Paul and Peter when Peter comes to town. Verse 11 says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners, while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I've torn down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died for nothing. <coughs> Excuse me. Can you believe that? Can you believe what's happening here? Paul is so grounded in his faith that he calls P Peter out publicly to his face. Now, did you catch the problem that Paul is confronting in his friend Peter here? Peter had regularly been eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. They had been eating together. They were hanging out together. They were fellowshipping with one another. They were doing all the things together. It was a beautiful picture here of unity in the body, unity in Christ. And everything was going great until a bunch of men came from James, they show up on the scene, they look at Peter, and they say, what are you doing? What's going on, man? What, what is happening here? What are you doing with those guys? 
The reason that they asked Peter this was not simply because he wasn't sitting at the cool kids' table like they were, but because the Jews had different customs. They had different regulations than the Gentiles did. If you've read the Old Testament, then you probably remember some of those rules and regulations that the Jewish people were required to follow. In addition to things like animal sacrifices, blood atonement, hair and clothing regulations, there were also dietary restrictions that the Jewish people were required to adhere to. The Jews were not allowed to partake in certain foods that the Gentiles were allowed to eat, no matter how delicious or how amazing these foods were, including bacon. (laughs) How many of you would just say, thank God for bacon? Right? Praise God for bacon. Amen. So the Jews confront Peter and they say, what do you think you're doing? As a result, Peter gets all worked up. He's nervous and he's afraid. And in turn, he quits eating with the Gentiles. He goes back to eating with the Jews. He goes back to hanging out with the Jews, back with spending time with them. Instead of the sense of unity and togetherness that we saw, there's now division, maybe even animosity between these two groups of people. Why is that? Why is that? Why didn't Peter just stand his ground? Why why didn't he just proudly proclaim that as a Christian he was free from the law? He could have told his fellow Jews that in Christ there is freedom, freedom from the law and freedom to eat delicious bacon. But he didn't. He returned to his past. He went back to his former ways of living. He returned to the obligations and requirements of the law. Peter had been saved by grace, but for whatever reason, he wanted to cling to God's laws instead. He wanted to go back to his former life before Christ. He returned to the very works that Christ had fulfilled on the cross. Why is that? What causes us to return to our past? What causes us to go back to our former way of living? Why do we neglect or or forget God's grace? Why do we cling to the law or to our own works for our assurance of salvation? Why do we do that? We all battle with various things, right? I mean, if we were to break out a whiteboard right now and really think through it and ask questions and we all kind of participated, I imagine we could come up with several different reasons that we kind of turn our back on God and we lose our faith in Him. Even right now, you're probably thinking of certain situations from your own life, from your own past where you've walked away from God, or you've turned your back on Him, or you've gone back to your old ways of doing things before you were a Christian. Obviously, there's lots of reasons for that, right? But today, I just want to highlight one. There's one huge reason that we see in our text today that caused Peter to let go of his faith and grab a hold of the law. And it's something that everyone in this room has dealt with. Fear. It's fear. It was fear. Peter was afraid. He was terrified. He had a major fear problem. Think about it. Stude was terrified. Do you know what his biggest fear was? The biggest thing that he was afraid of? Fear of man. Fear of others. Look back at verse 12 again. Peter was quick to succumb to peer pressure. 
Verse 12 says that he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and he separated himself because he, there it is, feared those from the circumcision party. This wasn't the first time Peter had dealt with fear either. Our next-gen students can tell you that Peter has wrestled with his fear of man issue before. In the book of John, we see Peter deny Jesus three times before he's crucified. Why? Because he's afraid of what others around him will think. He's afraid about those he's with and what they'll do and what they'll say. Peter was afraid. Oh, Peter. Here is a man that Paul refers to as a pillar of the faith. Someone who has walked with Jesus. He is the rock that Christ said that he would build his church upon. And yet, when confronted with the smallest amount of peer pressure, Paul, Peter crumbles and he turns back to his former ways. He binds himself to the very law that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has freed him from. can't judge Peter too harshly, though, can we? Especially when you consider the fact that we're all guilty of the very same thing. How often do we, too, find ourselves bending and turning to peer pressure or opposition from those outside of the church? We're convinced to abandon the truth of the gospel and instead hold on to the ways of the world. Many of us struggle with God's grace being enough to save us. We're constantly wanting to add the law back onto the gospel. We want our salvation to be the result of Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus our works. But it doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel. And sometimes, when you consider the gravity of God's grace, and the things that he's done for you, the sins that he's redeemed, man, that can be overwhelming. <laughs> but that doesn't change the fact that we are saved by grace and by grace alone. Peter's fear didn't change the truth of where his salvation came from. Nevertheless, he was still afraid. Peter was afraid, and it wasn't enough for him to just hold on to God's grace. Peter could have held on to his faith and boldly proclaimed to those in the circumcision party that he was saved by grace alone, but he didn't. Those guys weren't even believers. They weren't even Christians. Those guys in the circumcision party, they didn't believe in Jesus. What did it matter what they thought of Peter? Spoiler alert, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what they thought. It doesn't matter what they thought of Peter, and it doesn't matter what others think of you. What does matter? The gospel. Peter had the perfect opportunity to share the gospel with these dudes but he didn't. Why? Why didn't he share the gospel? Why was Peter afraid? Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid to share the gospel when given the opportunity? It's fear, right? That's what it does. Fear surrounded Peter. He was surrendered by it. Fear overtook him, and it overtakes us too. Fear, fear runs rampant in our world today. 
Corporations today make millions of dollars each year feeding our fears and fueling our worries. We get so laser-focused on our fears and our doubts that we become paralyzed to the truth and the freedom that is found in Christ. Why? Why does that happen? Do we forget? Do we just forget about the work that Christ has done? Maybe. Maybe not. Do you think Peter forgot? I don't think Peter forgot. I think Peter knew. Peter was aware of the work that Christ had accomplished. He was there. He saw it firsthand. Peter hadn't forgotten about the work that Christ accomplished. He knew what Christ had done on the cross. He knew the differences between God's laws and God's grace. How could he forget? It it was Peter who in Acts 10 had the vision of the sheet coming down from heaven filled with various types of animals and the Lord telling him, what God has made clean, do not condemn. Peter knew he could eat bacon. He knew he could hang out with the Gentiles. God told him that he could. And yet, he caved to the peer pressure and succumbed to his fears. Here's a real kicker, too. Sometimes the worst part of our fears isn't how they affect us. It's how they affect those around us. Look at what happened next. Look at verse 12 and 13 again. We already read verse 12. It said, He regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. But when those men came, he withdrew and he separated himself because he was afraid of the circumcision party. Then look at this in verse 13. It says, Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter's fears led others astray. His fears caused others to stumble. His fears and worries caused others to take their eyes off of God. I read this text and I can't help but ask myself the question, how have my own faith struggles affected those around me? What have my own faith struggles done to those around me? How many times have I doubted or I've been afraid and I've caused others to become worried or anxious and taken their trust away from the Lord? Thankfully for Peter, and in turn for us, Paul was there. And Paul stood boldly in his faith. Paul was firmly grounded in his beliefs, and he was not about to be as easily persuaded as his brothers and sisters in Antioch were. Let's look at the remainder of our pericope and see what happens next. Verse 13, we saw the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I, Paul, saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you, who are a Jew, act like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But if we ourselves are also found to be sinners while seeking to be justified by Christ, is Christ then a promoter of sin? Man, absolutely not. If I rebuild those things that I've torn down, I show myself to be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Many of us are easily overtaken by our fears and worries, but we're not alone. It happened to Peter. It happened to Barnabas. It happened to the other Christians living in Antioch. And it happened to the Galatians, too. Look, the whole reason that Paul is telling this story in the first place is because the Galatians are starting to turn away from the truth of the gospel, just like Peter did. Paul opens his letter to the Galatians in verses 6 and 7 by stating, I am amazed... He's so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You read this, and I know what you're thinking. Who would want to distort the gospel, right? It happens. It happened then. It's happening today. But that's a story for another time. People distort the gospel. And we get scared. And we get afraid, but the key is to remember you are not alone. You're not alone when you get distracted. You're not alone when you worry. You're not alone when you're scared. What's important to remember is that God is bigger than our fears. He's greater than our worries. If you grew up in the church in the 90s, you know this. You know that God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla and the monsters on TV. God's word reminds us that he is faithful. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. I get knocked down, but I get up again. He ain't never going to keep me down. I worked really hard on these references that two people in the room are getting today. I hope you appreciate it. Moving on. We can clearly see that Peter messed up. He done messed up, but God redeems him. We see that repeatedly through Scripture. The same is true for us today. If you've done messed up, God will redeem you, and he will restore you. The question you have to ask yourself is, how many times do you want to get knocked down? Where Peter got knocked down, Paul stood firm. Why is that? What was different? The only difference that I can see is that Paul wasn't afraid. He knew where his hope came from. He knew who he was in Christ. How? He had been crucified with Christ. Look again, verse 20. We've read it before. We'll read it again. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a powerful verse. And when you understand it in its full context, it's even more powerful than when we first read it. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, somebody ought to make that a memory verse. Wait a minute. I can do that. After all, what kind of family pastor would I be if I didn't assign a memory verse for us today? Faith family, this is your memory verse for today. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Every week our kids get memory verses, and this week it looks like our parents do too. My kids, it's your responsibility to make sure your parents memorize this verse before they come back on Sunday. They have to recite this verse back to you, just like you always have to recite your verses back to them. So kids, if you're taking notes, write down that verse, Galatians 2.20. And then kids, just like your parents do, when they're done reciting the verse to you and they get it all right, and make sure they get it right, I want you to ask the really hard follow-up question that they always ask you. I want you to say, Mom, Dad, what does that verse mean? I hope they give you a good answer. And I hope they tell you that as Christians, in order to put on Christ, we have to die to our sinful desires. We have to be crucified with him and allow Christ to rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. Because when we do, not only will we put a death to our fears, but we will fuel our faith because our faith will be found in Jesus Christ. Now maybe you're sitting here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're sitting here today or you're watching online and your life is consumed with fears and anxiety. If that's you today, I want you to know one thing. All of that can change in an instant. You can surrender your life over to Christ. You can die to yourself and live for him. You can bury your worries and hold on to the grace of God that is only made possible through Christ Jesus, his son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if that's you today, let's have a conversation after church about what that looks like. Or go up to one of the many people in this room today and ask them to explain the gospel to you. In the meantime, I want us to pay special close attention to how Paul ends our portion of Scripture today. He ends our portion of Scripture with these powerful statements. First, he starts with our memory verse, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, and I live that by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Do you see the danger that comes 
from letting go of God's grace just to pick back up the unnecessary burdens of the law? If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Thankfully, we know that isn't the case, though, because Romans 8.1.4 tells us, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If Paul were to adopt the law now, if he were to follow in Peter's footsteps and adopt the law, it would effectively prove that he was a lawbreaker when he believed in Christ Jesus as the means for his justification. However, rather than becoming a lawbreaker, Paul has become someone who lives for God. He didn't break the law. He died to the law. And in turn, he was crucified with Christ. One of the commentators that I study stated that if Paul had chosen to cling to the framework of the law, he would have committed spiritual suicide. None of us can fulfill the law. Not even Paul. Trying to fulfill the law and keep 100% of the commandments 100% of the time is futile. It's vanity in a pursuit of the wind. We are going to struggle. We're going to fall short of the glory of God. That's why Paul reminds us in Romans 3.24 that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. God alone is the one who can forgive us of our sins. It's God's redeeming grace that saves us, not the law. Should we keep the Ten Commandments? Absolutely we should. In fact, we've been commanded to. However, when we don't, and there are times when we definitely don't, Instead of ensnaring ourselves with the fears and the worries that come from being bogged down by the law and the fears of not being enough to enter into heaven, we need to look to the one who fulfilled the law. We need to thank God that he sent his son to fulfill the law and to redeem us from our sins that consume us. Praise God he covers us with his grace and exchanges our sins for his righteousness. Our works cannot and will not ever save us. It is Christ who saves us. It's Christ who redeems us. As a result, we need to stop living in fear. Instead, we need to walk in faith in Christ Jesus. We need to be crucified with Christ and allow him to rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. Church, the key to the Christian life is not just the Christ who died on the cross for you, but the Christ who lives inside of you. We live by faith when we believe in Christ. Always. Every time. All the time. 
365, always believing in Christ. As Christians, we are called to believe in Christ for everything, for our salvation, for our justification, our satisfaction, our joy, our happiness, for our peace. We need to look to Christ more than we look to anything in this world and anything that it can offer. We need to believe Christ for our holiness. We need to look to Christ for our power over sin, hell, death, and the grave, for our redemption, for our salvation, for our everything. This is Christianity. Believing in Christ for everything. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord, every moment and every day that we're alive. Lord, we need you. Rather than living for the things of this world, we must live for God. There's nothing better, and there's nothing sweeter. After all, Romans 14.8 says, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. So what are you afraid of? What are you worried about? In Christ, there's nothing to fear. In Christ, there's nothing to worry about. He's our protector and he's our provider. As Christians, we are indwelt by Christ. Christ lives in us. The Christian life is not just about living for Christ. It's about trusting Christ to live in us and through us and for us. This is faith. By faith, we have been accepted before God. By faith, we have been adopted into his kingdom. By faith, we have been found alive in God. And by faith, we have freedom from the law. We have victory over our fears. Examine your life. What is your heart filled with today? Is it fear? Or is it faith? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, that you do redeem us. You do save us. You do rescue us, and you do forgive us. Lord, too often we get caught up in our fears, in our worries. We get caught up in anxiety over things in this world and the brokenness that we find ourselves in. Oh, but Lord, you sent your son to redeem us and save us, to give us peace in the troubled times, to give us comfort when we're lonely and scared. Lord, I pray that moving forward, we would keep our eyes solely focused on you, that we would remember the redeeming work that you've done on the cross for us, that we'd remember, remember that our, our salvation is found in you and you alone. Whether we live, whether we die, whatever it is, Lord, may it be for you. May it be for your glory that we would serve you faithfully all the days of our lives. Help us not to lead others astray. Help us not to lead others into hypocrisy, but to trust in you. Help us to draw others close to you. Help us to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. So that in a time where it seems like everyone around us is scared or worried, they can look at us and go, why are you happy? How do you have joy in a time like this? And we could tell our coworkers, we could tell our neighbors, we could tell our friends about the hope. 
all the hope that is found only in you and in Christ alone. It's in your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.